Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues the series of messages on serving Christ in the new year. In this sermon, we are taught the command to make disciples. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Make Disciples. chapter 28. Let's begin reading in verse 18. Uh, We'll read and then ask for God's help as we study. So verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Please bow with me. Our gracious um, and sovereign God, Lord, we remember your words that you've spoken, the grass withers and the flowers fade. Lord, and as we look around at the world around us, the beliefs uh, all around us change every 15 minutes, but your word endures forever. We come to you, eternal, living God, and ask for grace. Father, you have given us your word. We thank you for the sweet and precious, life-changing, life-giving gift of your word. And we are gathered here, drawing near to your throne, wanting to know you, wanting to exalt you, wanting to worship you. And Lord, we see that you've given us the word as the chief way that we draw near and come to engage with you and know you. So Father, we ask, please come right now as we engage in this activity that the world looks in at as though it is strange, a group of people studying a book thousands of years old and and having the very source of our life depend on it, oh God. But Lord, we know where the transformation, where it comes from, oh God. So we pray, God, give us grace right now. The miracles that you work through the word, we pray that you do them in our midst right now. Shatter the hardness of hearts. Bring us into submission. Uh, Awaken, bring us out of darkness into light. We pray that you send us your spirit. Lord, while your word is the source of life, our authority, Father, we also recognize that if we were just to meet here according to the flesh, without you meeting with us and giving us grace, still no good would come because of our weakness. We need you to enable us. We need you to shed light. So God, we beg for that. Everything that needs to happen for us to worship in this way that pleases you, please provide all of it. I need grace All of us need grace, so God, to receive your word, meet it with faith, and then for it to change us. So please, oh Lord, we pray, reveal your glory, transform your people, save the lost, bring us along, all of it for your your exaltation, oh Lord, we pray, and we ask it all through Christ. Amen. All right, we are picking up where we left off last Sunday. And if you remember last Sunday, we read these verses. Uh, where Jesus gives us the great commission. And then we went on to look at uh, what is the first part of this great commission, where Jesus calls us to make disciples. We saw that the first part 
of what it means to obey this command, go and make disciples, is to help those who are not following Christ understand what it means to follow Christ, to trust in him as Lord, and then to become a disciple. It involves this work of explaining to souls the truth that the Bible calls the gospel, that you must be reconciled to God. If you continue on the trajectory you're heading apart from Christ, there really is a hell You will miss out on the eternal life in the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus has come to accomplish what's necessary for you to be made right with God. And if you will turn to Christ, if your heart will trust in Christ, you will be brought into the kingdom of God. This is step one of making disciples. And so we talked a lot about that last Sunday, about the role of helping those not following Christ to understand what it means and then to turn. But we recognize here as we look at this passage and the rest of the New Testament, that Jesus shows there's a lot more that we're being commanded to do here. There's a lot more of what it means to fulfill the Great Commission. We are not simply to become disciples and then remain as babes and infants in Christ. There is this calling, there is a full measure of what it means to become a disciple. And so what happens here in Matthew 28 is that in a very, very brief way, there's kind of a a summary command and instruction that's given. The rest of the New Testament unpacks this, uh, goes into more detail about it. So in fact, where we're about to return to in the book of Romans so when we return to Romans, we're, begin, we're going to begin chapter 6. Chapter 6, the whole point, the whole theme is about God's expectations for us as Christians to grow into the full measure of what it means to be a Christian. So we're going to spend a long time looking at sanctification, okay? The big word that just means to be made holy, to grow in Christ. So this will be a kind of helpful introduction to the time we're going to spend in Romans 6, but we're looking at this today and there'll be kind of a a, a dual call here. We're going to see what it means to be a disciple and there's the instruction for all of us, let us, let us say it to ourselves, let's go be this, let's go pursue this. And then the call that Jesus gives, and as we are striving As we are living, it is instruction that we've been given by God. We are to go do this, work this in the lives of others. Our lives are to be useful in helping others progress in what it means to be a disciple, to grow up into the full measure of what it is to be the people of God. So I want to spend some time looking at this today. I'm going to do it in three parts here. I'm going to take just a bit uh, and make some kind of introductory remarks about the Great Commission, Matthew 28 here. And then I'm going to try to help us think through stages of growth as a disciple. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for our role of helping others to grow through the stages of discipleship? And then lastly, some application, hopefully some exhortation for us to go do this. So let's begin with this first part, some introductory remarks about Matthew 28 as we look at the text. As you kind of look through 18 to 20 there again, you've no doubt seen in the past that in verse 18, Jesus introduces the command, the command that he's about to give, this mission that he's going to give the people he just bled and died for, 
rose from the grave. He's going to give us a mission. He's about to send his people, the church, out to fulfill a mission. He introduces the command with a declaration of his sovereign authority. His authority over the earth, the galaxies above the earth, the angels, all that exist in the heavenly realm. He's Lord of heaven and earth. We say that a lot. Consider what it means. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before him. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord sovereign over every atom that is on this planet, but also the galaxies of the universe obey his voice. Quasars explode as he commands them to. And the angels in the heavenly realm do what he says. And he has authority even over the demons who will one day be cast into the torments of hell by the breath of his mouth. He is sovereign And this is how he introduces the command. It's quite the introduction to a command he's about to give. With that introduction, now comes the Great Commission. Verse 19, look at at some of the parts there. Go, which implies intentionality in going. Secondly, make disciples. And, you know, we're going to really hone in on this one and, and another part of this. Of all the nations, meaning this is not simply in a matter of convenience or simply in our homes, though it must take place in our homes. Baptize these disciples, he goes on to say, to mark them as followers of Christ for there to be a public and physical way to to give an act of submission. He continues on, teach them to observe all that Christ commanded And then lastly, there's a promise of power that Jesus will be with us, working in us and through us as we do his work. For the rest of our time, I kind of just want to hone in on on two of these. The Great Commission is big enough that it needs many, many studies. So we can't look at everything every time we look at it. But let me hone in on just two of them here. We're told to make disciples. You know, you've heard us say in the past that we cannot make anybody love Jesus, okay? But that's not the way he's using the word make here. He's not using go force the nations to love Jesus, okay? Uh, People have tried that kind of thing. It doesn't work. What he's saying when he uses the word make here is make in the sense of form, mold, create, uh, help others in this work that God is accomplishing in people's lives, but in a mysterious way, we are involved in the creation and making of disciples, win disciples. The mission is to do this. The mission is believers individually, and then believers gathering corporately, mobilizing, strategizing together as church families and even ministries within the church family to form followers of Christ who, and then here's the critical next part, the other one that I really want to call your attention to, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So you may remember this part as well. Did Jesus tell us that when we help someone who's not a follower to become a follower of Christ, to become a Christian for the first time, did he tell us to go teach them all of the Bible? 
Well, yes, but that's still not the full measure of what it means. Even if we were to teach every single verse of the Bible, that would take a long time. But even if we were to teach every single verse of the Bible, it's still not done. It's still not the full measure of the command here. He said, teach them to observe, teach them to obey all that I commanded you. We're realizing here that this is the kind of command that will take a lifetime and we won't ever be done even with one disciple in a lifetime, let alone the goal of every single soul on the planet bowing the knee to King Jesus. We're being given a big kind of mission here, but obedience and faithfulness is going as far as we can ourselves and bringing as many as we can, as far as we can in this work. And this is the call to help form believers into the full measure of what it means to be a disciple. And, and, and we also have to talk about, what, what remember what a true disciple is. A true disciple is not simply one who's just willing to say that they are a Christian. A true disciple is, well, you might jump over to Luke 14 for just a second there. A quick place that Jesus gives a, a definition Luke 14, look at verse 26. I know I'm, I'm going to go kind of quickly if you're not there. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, his even his own life, what does he say? He cannot be my disciple. Now, you know the clarification there that Jesus does not actually want you to go to and despise family members. This is a poetic device called hyperbole, but you know what he is saying. There is to be no one and no thing that we love above Jesus. Nobody gets submission like the supreme devotion that we give to Christ. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There is a calling to a holistic submission to Christ, a willingness to die, and a, a submission that will not allow ourselves to live in unrepentant sin. Look at verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Even if within the heart, there has to be the acknowledgement that all that I have ultimately belongs to him and it is to be used as unto him. So what's a disciple? A disciple is not someone who won't come to church when it's too rainy, too sunny, too hot, or too cold. We just eliminated a lot of American Christianity in one sentence. A true disciple is not someone who will actively live in unrepentant sin. We all have sin. We understand that. True disciple is not somebody who's totally mature, has everything figured out, and no longer struggles with anything. That's not what a disciple is. But a disciple is someone who is battling. A disciple is someone who, I, I think this is a helpful way, and I, I take this from First John as he talks about patterns of sin. A true disciple is someone who is on trajectory. It's someone who is on trajectory towards growth in Christ, maturity in Christ, and submission to Christ. A true disciple battles sin, fights sin, and is making progress at times faster than others, but is making progress. A true disciple isn't somebody who has it all figured out, knows all the Bible's questions and answers, and has reached that top level of arrival 
which we will never reach in this life, but there is a trajectory towards more and more submission. Let me make it as clear as I can though. If the trajectory you are on is that of living in patterns of unrepentant sin, then according to Jesus's definition, you are not living as a disciple. If the trajectory you are on is that of saying something with your lips, but your life looks like the world, Jesus says you're not a disciple. Titus 1, here's like one of 40 places we we could look. Titus 1, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. A disciple of Christ is actively battling, actively making progress and willing to sweat, bleed, puke and die for Christ. Now, if you are feeling discouraged at this moment, okay, also bear this in mind. The Bible is constantly holding up two truths next to each other and we are to be careful that we don't just run away with one of them or the other. Holy, 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 and what a friend we have in Jesus, okay? The Bible's constantly putting two truths together that we are to see both aspects of. And so understand this, there is some hard words that Jesus speaks about what a true disciple is, but also understand that there is grace. The same Jesus who said Luke 14 also said, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering flax he will not extinguish meaning. He is full of grace to the weak Christian. And all of us at some points are going to fall into these places of weakness and struggle. He is gracious and not disgusted with you as his people. So if you feel helpless, the refuge is Christ. Don't run away from him in fear, run to him for grace. So while... We can't look at everything the Bible has to say on the grace and strictness that is there. But even with these things right here, we need to see this. We need to hate a superficial kind of religion that lives for the flesh while makes claims of godliness. So we see those things and there's a whole sermon on the definition of what it means to be a Christian and how we see Jesus communicating, okay, high expectations. That is one of the things to take away. Jesus really does have high expectations for us, not where you'll be on day one, but on where we're heading towards. There's a whole message on the definition of what it means to be a Christian. I'm just giving the the abbreviated version here because we study it often and we're trying to go further. Jesus not only calls you to be one, He calls us to participate in making them. He calls us to participate in helping others come along in this. Our job is to be heading this trajectory as well, the direction of this trajectory and bringing others to be formed into this as well. This is the mission. And here's the part I'm kind of trying to emphasize right now. The mission is make disciples. The mission is to make followers. Our job is not to try to see how many people we could convince to come into a room by any means at all. And even if that room is a church building room. Our job is not to try to run a circus to create nominal believers. Our job is to make disciples. People living Luke 14. 
Our job is not to make attendees, it's to make disciples, okay? Let me, let me pick up a thought that I kind of shared last Sunday. Oftentimes, you can ask my wife on Sunday afternoons and evenings, I'm very aggravated and hate myself for all the things I wish I would have said more clearly. You get that. Here's one from last Sunday that I wish would have been said clearer, and maybe I won't even get it right now, but we'll try. I mentioned last week that the number one way that churches grow is not by souls being saved, but it's rather by transfer growth. It's oftentimes by churches working to try and lure people from other churches. Let me, let me give an example. Uh, years ago when I was serving in youth ministry before uh, pastoring here, there, there was a time, this will date me in some ways, but there was a time when nightclubs were all the rage. It's what pop culture was all obsessed with, nightclubs, nightclubs, blah, 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 whatever. There was a particular church, you know, I've, I've seen the belly of the beast and served in mega church. It's part of what gave me such a sour taste for some of these things. There was a particular church that uh, saw this whole nightclub rage and says, here's what we need to do. Take the youth room, okay, which was even bigger than this building right here and turn it into a nightclub. Not a joke, okay? Disco lights, the ball, the dance floor, all of it, nightclub, everything. And a whole bunch of youth wanted to go to that church. Go figure, must have been the really good preaching that was going on, okay? Other churches in the area see this kind of thing, see that there's a fad going on. I'll exaggerate a little bit here at this point. Similar things happen, but you'll understand what I mean. Other churches see this fad and be like, huh, we need the nightclub youth room as well. Let's do it. And let's, you know, we always got to one-up the competition. So we'll hire a DJ, church funds, hire a DJ. So we got the nightclub youth group. We got the DJ. Other churches see this, huh, we got to do the same thing. So we got the nightclub, we hire a DJ and we'll give out free pizza. And you just see the one mob going from one church to another church, to another church, to another church. That's a bit of an extreme example, but in the background, contrasted with that, now hear this. Make disciples, disciples, followers of Christ, people willing to profess the name of Jesus while getting their faces kicked in in North Korea. Disciples, followers of Christ. This is what we are to be, and this is what we're called to make. And there's always such a temptation to try to sort of measure our success by how many butts we can get to seats rather than how many people are following Christ. <clears throat> rather than how many mature believers are being raised up, how many are going to the nations, how many churches are being planted, how much are we doing to send resources and people outside of us for the good of the kingdom of Christ. We're called to make disciples. So what does this entail? How are we to do this? How does God want you and I to participate? Let me, let me try to approach it like this. I want, I want to try to help us think through various stages, or various steps of the growth of a disciple. Um, and I'm going to give you six of them. There's no place in the Bible that says here are the six stages of discipleship. I'm just trying to take various categories and help us think through the process of maturing, the process of growing to the full measure of Christ there. So this is part number two, six steps of discipleship. Here's number one. Step one is what we considered last Sunday, that we are to be active in trying to help those who are not following Christ to understand the gospel see their need of forgiveness of sins, and genuinely turn to Christ in faith. Um, this is missions and evangelism. So we spent a great deal of time on that. We had a whole sermon. Let me just say one more thing about it. 
we as a church family, we cannot ever stop thinking like missionaries. The moment that we stop thinking like missionaries, the moment that we stop thinking in terms of make disciples, bring the lost to Christ, our death begins at that moment. Okay, guys, churches that die, somehow they have failed to continue the work to create disciples. Now, sometimes what happens is a town dies around them and there are no people. Doesn't always mean it's the church's fault. But what has happening, if a church dwindles, there is a failing to make disciples. We must always keep this as the mission and the, the evangelism to lost souls must always be part of what we are endeavoring in. Missions, missions is when we go outside our homeland to go do this. Evangelism is when we do it right here. So that's step one. But step number two. Step two would be basic early growth in obedience and knowledge. Obedience and knowledge. Imagine someone, this might be helpful to imagine um, a scenario of someone growing. You might even look back to your own growth and what God's done in your life. Imagine somebody coming out of a rough background. Recently, in our Good News Ministries, we just, it's, it's part of what just keeps fueling our zeal and our excitement is that we just regularly see Souls trust Christ, lives change. Recently in this ministry where we go into the schools here, a young man coming out of a pretty rough home and background. I, I obviously do not have the liberty. It would not be appropriate to tell you details, but if I did, it would make, it would make his conversion so much more glorious in, in your minds. But this young man coming out of this rough background has now told us that he has turned to Christ. He knows nothing about the Bible other than the basic message of the gospel. But already this young man is beginning to talk to his friends about Jesus. He doesn't know Christians are supposed to do evangelism. He doesn't know the word evangelism. He's never sat in a Sunday school class. Nobody has ever told him, hey, here's how you share Jesus with your friends without fear. He's never, he's never done that. He just knows, I got friends that don't know Jesus. I want them to know him. He is inviting them to study the Bible. This is, just, so just imagine as we think through this kind of process, someone being converted out of difficulty. What do what the early days look like? Well, you know, for one, coming out of that kind of background, it probably gonna look a lot different than some of our church kids growing raised in nice homes, being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a great advantage we are giving them, by the way. But the early days of growth are figuring out how to begin to obey and figuring out those basic and big doctrines of the Bible. Basic early growth in learning the word of God and learning to begin to obey the word of God. This is as we patiently help men leave pornography, as we help wives learn how to respect their husbands, as we help husbands learn how to love their wives. This is teaching those big and most basic truths of the Bible. When you turn to Christ, your race begins. Your journey to grow into the full measure of what God created and saved you to be begins and just step two is the basic early stuff. Now, how long do we stay in this kind of stage two? It's not about time, it is about effort. 
It is not about, well, I've been here for six months, therefore I'm out of it. No, let's be real here. And this is going to be part of the, the hard encouragements and challenges that I give to you. Far too often Christians stay in the early stages too long by lack of effort, by lack of engagement to keep growing in Christ. Step three, as we try to think through the stages, would be growth to a place of relative maturity in obedience, holiness, and knowledge of Christ. Now, here are two words, most importantly here, character and conviction. Character and conviction. I didn't coin this phrase about what it means to grow as a disciple, but character, our holiness and obedience, conviction, our beliefs, knowing Christ through knowing his word. So while we will not reach sinlessness in this life, the Bible does say this, you can live righteous. That's an encouraging thing, by the way, okay? As believers, we understand Part of the understanding of the gospel, God really, really hates sin. Sometimes there can come this discouragement. I'm a disciple, but I, but I still sin. Also, see this very encouraging truth. You can please God. You can live in a way that is a good witness to the world, that God understands what we are capable of, and you can please God with your life. This is learning how to live obediently to God, not in a way that is arrived. We're going to do a lot of talking about that some today, and as we go into Romans 6, okay, we're never going to reach a place where we, we're done in the Christian life. You're never going to reach a place where you can say, now I can stop, okay? But we can come to a place that pleases God. Let me put it like this. There's a pace that pleases God. So we've got to have the right metaphor. If you picture the Christian life as a ladder, you got the wrong metaphor, a ladder that you climb and I can stop here with the idea that then I'll stay here for the rest of my life. That's the wrong metaphor. The metaphor Hebrews gives us is that of a race. There's a pace that pleases God. And then there's a pace that sort of starts to give up. Or you might picture swimming, but you're swimming in a river. And if we were to stop, because this is the reality, when we stop fighting and stop going, where does the current take us? The current of the sin nature, influence of the world takes us backwards. There is a certain amount of effort that it takes as a Christian just to stay where we are. And then to make progress, there is more. The Bible uses the metaphor of working out. You can work out really hard for a season. If you stop cold turkey, things begin to sag and weaken, okay? There is a certain amount of effort that it takes to maintain strength and then effort to progress. We've got to have the right metaphor. So as we see this, the stage three that we're talking about is learning a pace of progress that pleases God. This is growth in character and growth in conviction, holiness and obedience, and then the knowledge of God through the word of God. As we continue to think through this, here would be step four, equipping for service. Now, of course, you know, there's overlap with three and four, and that's why there's no place in the Bible that says it goes exactly like this. I'm just trying to help us think through various parts of growing, various different dimensions of it. So when I think about step number four as being equipping for service, understand that if you have been a Christian for even one day, one day, 
you can begin to serve the kingdom of God and you can be useful. In fact, very often the church's best evangelists are the brand new believers, okay? This is very often the case. But there is such a thing as recognizing the gifts that God has given you, those spiritual gifts that the New Testament talks about and, and, and doing, so, so listen closely, doing intentional work so as to sharpen your axe and then use the axe. So if you think of the spiritual gifts that God gave you as, a, as, a, as an axe, well, you can hack with a dull axe. And from the moment we're saved, we are to begin doing that. But we are also to do work of growing in effectiveness, growing in competence, sharpening the ax. So part of living as a disciple is desiring to serve the kingdom of God with effective usefulness, which means we are to serve and we are to work to grow more and more effective in our service. So think about it. You got hospitality, as a gift, you can do hospitality with a dull ax and there will still be fruit. But man, when hospitality is done with a sharp ax, the fruit and the effectiveness that comes when Miss Donna does uh, hospitality, okay? There's incredible kinds of fruit. You know the difference between effectiveness that happens when a, a poor sermon is preached, there's a dull hatchet being swung, versus sharpness that is there. There is a different level of fruit. And so what we are tracking here is growth in competence. So, so let me put these together. I, somebody way smarter than me coined this sort of alliterated three-word phrase here to help us remember. Growing as a disciple is growing in character, conviction, and competence. Character is our godliness of holiness and obedience. Conviction is knowing Christ through knowing his word and competence is growing in our usefulness of service. As we grow as a disciple, we are striving to grow in each of these things. So as we continue to think through the stages here, here would be step number five, at least as I'm outlining some. Leadership development. Leadership development. 2 Timothy 2.2 tells the church's leaders to out of the body of Christ, okay, so we're, we're, we're laboring to out of the body of Christ of disciples, to strive to grow disciples to maturity and out of those who are on pace to maturity to specifically invest in mature believers so as to raise them up to be leaders. God wants the church, number one, to be a never-ending factory of disciples, but also a never-ceasing factory of leaders. That part takes a lot longer. It's not quick. This is the work of years in individuals' lives, but we are to never stop this process. So out of the disciples, those who are making process, prog progress, process, Male leaders are to intentionally train up other men to reproduce themselves, equip men for leadership. And Titus 2 commands the mature, godly women to do similar things amongst ladies. This is a regular part of what God calls the church to do. And, and, and so here's one we need to see. This is another one of those big ones. God has given all these principles to the church. Some of them are easy. 
Some of them take longer to like get for the light bulb to go off. Every single one of these principles and instructions that God gives the church, when we begin to do them, there is a jump forward in the fruit and effectiveness that we have. And then we are to grow in the effectiveness of them. But this is one right here that I'm going to tell you, it is easy to miss. It is easy to miss the work of the finishing out of the equipping and training of more leaders. Because I mean, just think about it. It's easy for a church family to come to a place where we look around and just go, this is awesome. Like, look what God did. I'm regularly amazed when I look at the life of what God has done and the fruit that's come in this place. And we could look around and just go, this is fantastic. And then stop swimming against the current and just stay right here. And what happens inevitably is that we will go backwards. Jesus calls us to a never ending pursuit of striving to raise up disciples, leaders, goers, workers, laborers, and we don't stop till every soul bows the knee to Jesus or he returns, whichever comes first. I think I know which one will come first, but we are to strive to continue on this. But here's what great leaders do. Guys, watch this through history, okay? Those, those heroes from history that we love, you love to read their biographies. Those great Christians that we, we read their books today and such, and we respect. This is, there, there's something about watching what they did. I mean, every church, we're to be doing this, but whenever you see useful servants in history doing something, there's something to take note of, okay? Amy Carmichael did this. Charles Spurgeon did this. Luther did this. Calvin did this. Those guys whose books you buy, they do this. Spurgeon would gather men who are on pace to maturity, gather them up, and very intentionally invest in them to try to bring them farther, as far along as they can. And, and, and I get it that there's a way that that could just sort of seem obvious, but you do have to understand this. All this is, is, is imitating Jesus's model, but you need to see this about what Jesus did. Jesus, yes, did evangelism amongst the lost to bring souls to be saved. And yes, he did spend time with believers of every maturity level so as to bring them along, but he very intentionally did not spend as much time with everybody as he did the 12. He very intentionally pulled them away to go and invest in them for the leadership development to train them up to the highest, to reach the highest potential of what they could. Jesus showed it, modeled it, and then the New Testament says, go and do likewise. Every disciple is to be participating in the making of disciples and God commands the church's leaders to be doing this right here, specifically working to make leaders. So disciples, we are to get intentional about spending time with other disciples. We are to get intentional. Every disciple, we need to get intentional about spending time with some disciples who are farther along in the faith than us and let their, the leaven of their influence impact us so that we're brought along and then God also instructs us to intentionally spend time with disciples who are not as far along with us or lost folks to try to bring them along. Both of these happening. But when you look at this leadership development part here, 
you know, some of these leaders that we respect from history, sometimes they would do this with maybe three in their lifetime. Some of them quite a few more, but understand this isn't the kind of thing that happens like a dozen a year. It doesn't happen that fast. We're talking about the kinds of investments that take place over years. And when we look at the New Testament, we see Jesus model it and send us out into the work to do this. This really is one of the things that the church family really ought to expect the church leaders to be doing. Expect this kind of thing to be <laughs> happening. And just very practically speaking, if you are invited, if you're uh, invited by a leader, if I invite you and we do this in all kinds of different ways to read a book together, start meeting regularly, memorize a passage together, work through something, serve in a ministry together, uh, understand what is happening in that. There's something very strategic in that. Um, when we do these kinds of things, I promise, you've heard me say this before, I'm not bored and looking for more things to fill my time. This is us trying to do this right here. This is us trying to do 2 Timothy 2, 2, to never stop raising up leaders. Well, the last stage that I'll mention is this. The never-ending pursuit of growth so as to reach new levels of character, conviction, and competence, excellence, and faithfulness. And, and, and the thing I'm emphasizing here is this. You ain't done till you die. You ain't done till you die. Second Timothy, when Paul is just, we don't know, maybe weeks away from being beheaded, he writes to Timothy and asks, send the books so I can keep studying. You ain't done till you die. Philippians 3, Paul said, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. He went on to say, I don't stop running. I don't stop fighting. I don't stop pushing. We're not done till we die. There is the never ending work to press farther. And, and, and listen, let me, let me tell you a temptation. We're going to talk about it more in Romans six, but let me tell you a real temptation in the life of a Christian. You run and you are eventually going to reach a place where you look around and you don't see as many people around you. You're going to look around and you're going to see a place and you're, you're going to be, it's a good thing to recognize progress that God has brought in your life. It's a bad thing to look at that progress and then get prideful. It's, there, there will come a time in your Christian life where you realize, man, the list of sins that God has given me victory over, it's a lot. <laughs> the list of ministries I've been able to serve in, this is awesome. At that moment, rejoice but let's rejoice in tears of humility and gratitude and not allow this very sneaky thought to linger in our hearts. Man, I've really done it. I'm there. Now we know not to ever say with our lips, I've arrived, but our hearts can feel it. We can feel like I, I hit that upper plateau of the Christian life. And at that moment, we just fell about 14 of them. We're not done till we die. And let me tell you this as well. Many, many Christians will run real hard for a season, but rare is the Christian, just this is reality. Rare is the Christian who finishes really well, who goes all the way and pushes hard all the way 
to the end. I'm not saying fall away from Christ, but I am saying the pace slacken to a point that is no longer pleasing God like it once was. To go hard and then for the zeal to sustain to go the distance, that's the ticket. That's where we'll see the the most fruit. It's the long-lasting, long-enduring work that God calls us to. So after looking at those things, now see this. Christian and non-Christian, this is God's will for your life. This is what he calls you to. When we come to Romans 6, we're going to see the scripture show, this is God's will for your life. Your sanctification. This is what God wants for you. This is his expectation. And so out of that expectation, see two things. First, for you to make progress in this, people have to be making investment into your life. People have to be making investment in your life. Yes, there is a great deal of work you personally need to do on your own when nobody else is around. We'll talk about some of those things. But no, the work you do on your own when no one else is around is not enough. God designed the church family that we need each other. Lone wolf Christianity never works. Sanctification is a community project. We need the gifts and the ministries of one another pouring into our lives, Hebrews 10. And just know that's what we're doing with all of the various ministries that we set up. You've heard me say this before as well. We don't have Wednesday nights because a whole bunch of us are bored with nothing to do. We have Wednesday nights because we have soldiers to train because there are disciples to be made. Every ministry of the church that we're doing, it's all to this end right here. And and I get it that sometimes we can look into some of these ministries and just be like, oh, nothing's really gonna happen if I come together and pray with other people. But that's part of the mystery of how God works. He works through his people gathering together and the leaven of our influence infiltrates one another. The various gifts are being given and received and the work of the word of God spoken in love to one another has a transforming effect. This is God's method. God's method is get Christians together and get the word being taught in engaging in worship. That's the method. And this produces transformation. So you need people involved in your life. You need people engaging. And then additionally, see this, God wants you involved in helping other people through the process. To be discipled, you need people investing. And then God calls you to go do investing. And notice a couple of ways we do that. First, in a general way. There is a general way that we all help one another grow in Christ. I was thinking about that this morning as we were singing together and hearing the elevation of voices all around us increases my soul's joy in worship. There is a way we are speaking to one another. And I know it might seem strange sometimes to say names. I don't care. All I care about is us understanding the truth. When Miss Shelley prays on Wednesday nights, I grow in Christ. When somebody has us over for hospitality and good conversation takes place, I grow in Christ. When Logan and Bob and Pastor Ben and Brian teach Sunday school, I grow in Christ. When my kids go back to this room back here and they are instructed in the gospel, 
number of things are happening. You're helping my kids love Jesus. And then they come back to our household. They have been helped farther along in their walk with Christ. The whole family is helped. That helps me grow in Christ. And the only reason I'm using my example is because sometimes there's that idea Oh, the pastors, they're the professionals. There are no professionals in the body of Christ. We're all sheep traveling towards. We're all disciples struggling and fighting our way forward. But there is a general way that we are all to be involved in this kind of discipleship for the building up of one another. But the Bible also specifically shows a more intimate kind of discipleship. It models it. Jesus showed us how to do it. The apostles continued it throughout church history. They continued it and we are even instructed to do it. It's Paul taking Timothy, Titus, and Silas and investing in them. And it's just such a powerful thing. It is such a powerful thing to be in a relationship with someone where you are being discipled and being brought forward. And then Lord willing, one day you're able to return that to other souls. This is such a powerful thing. I've started to counsel young men entering ministry. I've just told them, I don't care how much education you have. Don't go into ministry until you have had a season where you have been discipled by someone you'd like to become like. It really is one of the places that in our culture, we're falling short in the leaders we're producing. We are thankfully sending out some really, really highly educated guys but oftentimes highly educated guys that haven't yet learned how to love their wives, haven't yet learned how to handle money. Just that discipleship of growing in maturity. So godly women of Truvine, we need you. We need you. We need you to push and run and go hard and then do Titus too with others. Men of Truvine, I'll start here. Your family needs you. You are the one responsible for the evangelism, discipleship, and shepherding of your families. Your family needs you to go hard, to model some things, and then to very intentionally work, striving to bring the family as far along to Christ as you can. And your church body needs you. The church is to be an unending factory producing disciples and raising up leaders. The nations need missionaries, churches need planting, more work needs done here. We are not to stop. Let me move to the last point here, application. We take all of that and we consider this. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are, how did Jesus end in that sentence? Are they abundant? The workers are few. There is always a shortage of workers. And the farther into the maturity process that you go, the fewer and fewer that there are. Because let's just kind of be honest and take an evaluation. As we look around at, at, at the American church as a whole, how far into this process do Christians generally make it? I mean, we don't want to be unfair in some judgment, but as we try to evaluate things, 
if we're honest, the answer is not nearly as far as Christ calls us to be. And there is often an immaturity that seems to linger for far too long. Where we're never in a place where the church is saying to one another, we have too many workers and not enough work. It's, it's always the opposite. It's always a place where we're looking at all of the need, all of the work, and always scrambling to try to send, raise up, mobilize, and, and, and get in place workers to go to these places. We're always in the situation that as we drive around communities, we see places where a church really needs to be planted. We drive through places, we drive through towns where we look at what's happening there. We see the false religion of a wicked, wicked group that calls himself a church that might be there. We see souls that are dying and going to hell. And we're confident if a vibrant gospel preaching church were there, I believe souls would be saved. But we're always stuck in this place. But how can we send more that is there? Christian leaders regularly get together to talk about places to plant. The most recent meeting that I went to, I brought a list of four places that I believe that if a vibrant church were planted, souls would be saved and they desperately need it. Other leaders brought their list, but here is always where we end. But who will we send? There's always a shortage of gospel workers. There is the need, the kingdom needs you, Christian. Now, of course, we believe in the sovereignty of God but that doesn't undo our responsibility to work. There's always a shortage of gospel workers and some gospel work takes more training and time than others. That is a reality, but there's always a shortage. It's never that the workers are many and the harvest is little. It's the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So Christian, by the authority of the word of God, I say to you, God is calling you to grow, to reach the potential he gave you in Christ. <clears throat> grow in the character, conviction, and competence to be useful to the kingdom. You will not automatically go to the places that God wants you to go to. It is going to take sweat and effort. Sanctification in a nutshell happens by God's grace at work with our sweat together. That's how you're sanctified. God at work through our sweat. Don't believe the lie that you're automatically gonna fulfill God's will for your life. That's a, that's a damning error that has often been communicated by those stupid little Christian catchphrases. Girl, you can't ruin God's will for your life. Maybe somebody should have told Judas that. Now, you'll never undo God's secret purposes in heaven. No, of course not. But in God's revealed will for you, we will not automatically grow to the place that God wants us to. It is going to take effort. The call here, Christian, is go, run. Let us run with endurance the race of the force. Let us go hard to grow. And then let us be intentional in striving to bring other disciples along. This is what God wants for you. This is what the church's job is. We are workers with you for your joy. And the joy of every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation in the only joy that will ultimately matter in the end, the joy of 
of salvation in Christ. Grow in Christ. Make your life count by helping others grow in Christ. Let's make disciples. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, thank you for your grace to us. And Lord, thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into light. Thank you that not only you sent Christ, but you have arranged a way, O oh God, that we have heard the message of the gospel. And I thank you for a church body walking with Christ. And I ask, O oh God, make us effective in this work. I pray, Lord, that you put a spirit of going hard to follow after you. And I pray, God, that we will be effective. I pray that we'll be intentional. I pray that we'll grow more and more in getting better at this work, Lord, of making disciples, both of winning the lost and of growing believers. Please, oh Lord, raise up more workers and send them out into your harvest, oh Lord. Father, we love you and pray these things through Christ. Amen. Lord bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, Make Disciples. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Thank you.